Welcome to the Brave Church Podcast. We are honored you've chosen to listen and pray you're blessed by this talk. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit bravechurch.org. Um, this morning I was at Starbucks and I was helping a guy, I was opening a door for him, he had his hands full of coffees, and uh, he goes, Merry Christmas. <laughs> and then he goes, I mean, Happy Easter. I said, it's okay, man, you haven't had your coffee yet, it's cool. I woke, I'm not sick, I woke up with a little bit deeper than usual voice, kind of the Lou Rawls, uh, P. Diddy, uh, <laughs> kind of effect here. I'm Darren Laws, I'm one of the pastors, they let me talk here every now and then. And uh, I just want to say Happy Easter to everybody. Um, I love comeback stories uh, because they give us hope that something spectacular really can happen in our lives. Uh, Steph Curry last year won the uh, MVP in the NBA, and uh, he's in the running again this year. But, uh, but that's not the way things started out for him. I don't know if you know the background. While he was accepting his MVP award last season, he said, it's the ultimate paradox of a story. He takes long shots, but for most of his life, he had been the long shot. Curry said that no one was banging on his door uh, for any of the colleges. He was not even rated as a high school recruit. No one wanted Curry. And after college, he was the, one of the lowest drafted players in NBA history. He went from, uh, he went from not being considered a high school recruit worth looking at, and no large college is looking at him, to now being talked about as potentially he could be one of our greatest all-time players ever. Um, another great player that I love as a 49er fan is uh, Joe Montana. I got to talk about him, and he's considered one of the greatest comeback quarterbacks of all times. Did you know that he led the 49ers, now get this, 31 fourth quarter comebacks, 31 fourth quarter comebacks. And I remember watching in the 80s, I remember it was always like the two-minute two minute warning, and he would go the full length of the field, and he just had nerves of steel. He was just absolutely amazing to watch. I love comebacks. I love to see them. I think we all do. Many years ago, Sports Illustrated came out with a list of the greatest all-time comebacks. Guess what hit the top of the list as the greatest all-time comeback? Jesus Christ. Sports Illustrated put Jesus Christ. This was years ago, and they said, I quote, Jesus Christ is number one because he confounds his critics and stuns the Roman authorities with his resurrection. Easter celebrates the greatest comeback in world history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the message of Easter. And it's the greatest comeback in history. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life. Notice those two words, resurrection and life. How can something that happened over 2,000 years ago impact my life today? What does the resurrection have to do with my life today? Because Jesus lives, because Jesus came back from the dead, because of the resurrection, I can come back from despair. Did you know that the number of people on antidepressants in America ranged from ages 12 years of age all the way up has increased over 400%. Wouldn't you agree with all that's going on in America and around our world that probably the number one emotion besides anger is despair, that people are trying to bounce back from one 
terrorist act after another. One anchor, news anchor said, we're now averaging a terrorist attack somewhere in the world approximately once a month. People are trying to bounce back in so many ways, bounce back from divorce in record numbers, and then their children are trying to bounce back and actually spend the rest of their lives trying to bounce back from divorce. People are trying to bounce back from sluggish uh, stock market, friends uh, that go through a rough time and the relationship or friendship ends. It just goes sideways and you're still wondering, you know, how could that happen? How do you bounce back from losing a job or worse yet, the death of a child or a loved one? How do you bounce back from disability? What happens when you lose your health or if you do or the tragedy in your life or pain? some tribulation. I don't think any one of us is looking to our government to fix anything. News for the politicians. We do not believe that you can fix anything. We do not believe in any of you. At least I don't. We thought we could count on that secure job. We thought we could count on that one person in our life that we married that would answer everything that we have need of. We thought that our investments were a sure thing. What in life is truly, truly secure? What can I know for sure will be here tomorrow? Let me introduce you to two people who are very discouraged. It's in uh, Matthew 27, verse 59. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Now, here's the picture of discouragement that I want you to see. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Everything they had hoped for, everything that they believed in, in a deliverer and a Messiah from Roman rule, and they're sitting there discouraged, and they're staring at this tomb in total despair. He's dead. And the scripture says that at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. They actually decided to go again. They were They were mourning. They were not looking for Jesus. They were mourning his death. And in that moment, they felt hopelessness, and they they were filled with despair as they stare at this tomb. And suddenly, in the midst of their despair, something big, something really huge suddenly happened in their life. It says there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. And then hear hear these words. They heard these words for the very first time. Imagine this moment. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Now those three words, he has risen, are the reason that millions and millions of people all over this planet today are worshiping and gathering to celebrate Easter. It's estimated one billion people worldwide. Those three words, he is risen, separate Jesus from every other religious leader in history. Pick any religious leader, Joseph Smith, Muhammad, L. Ron Hubbard. They all have one thing in common. Go to their graves, and they're still there. They're dead. Tracy, Samuel, and I, uh, in 2005, we got to visit Jesus' tomb. We waited in a very long line waiting and waiting and waiting, and when we got there, he was not there. (laughs) Christians for over 2,000 years have greeted each other on Easter morning with a proclamation followed by a response. The proclamation is, 
the Lord is risen, your response is, he is risen indeed. So we're going to try that this morning. The Lord is risen, and your response is, he is risen indeed. Are you ready? The Lord is risen. risen Let's do that again. The Lord is risen. risen Okay, you just you on the front row. Just kidding. (laughs) Just just kidding. That's why nobody sits there. Are you new? No, (laughs) just kidding. Why do people feel such hope when they say that? People have not gotten together for 2,000 years, millions of people all over the world, to say the stock market has risen, it has risen indeed. (laughs) People have not gotten together for 2,000 years, millions of people all over the world to say the employment rate has risen, it has risen indeed. Or the gross domestic product has risen, it's risen indeed. Or my 401k has risen, it has risen indeed. A billion people all over will say today, he has risen. And it's not that fact, it's that fact that the despair replaces, is replaced with hope. Hope and faith in the one thing that we can count on is our eternity in Jesus Christ. And when somebody gets a hold of hope, anything is possible. Some of you are here because it's, it's be nice to God Sunday. And God says thank you. Others of you are here as a relative or a friend brought you. And I just want to say you're, you're all so welcome. Really glad that you're here. Everyone is welcome here unless you're a Seattle Seahawk fan. No, I'm serious. So here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you to come back. I'm going to ask you to develop this into a habit, into a lifestyle. Next weekend, we have our guest speaker, Phil Comer, is going to talk about relationships. And then I'm going to start a series called A Good Life. You know, going to church is a lot like working out. Once you start working out, you go, oh, this, there's so much benefit. And you're going to find that as you get involved in church life. There's so much benefit beyond Easter. When you get hope... Anything is possible in your life. It's possible in your marriage, in your kids, your future. I love the story of these women because they walk to the tomb and they're hopeless and they're filled with despair and then they hear this good news that Christ is risen. And can you imagine what they felt like in that moment? Those ladies, as they're leaving that tomb, as they're running to tell the other disciples, they now know that anything is possible, that he really was God, he really is resurrected and all power is available to us. And so the number one thing, first of all, because of the resurrection, I can come back from despair. Secondly, because of the resurrection, I can come back from defeat. This last year, at the end of the year, December 20th, four men representing the United States began rowing across the Atlantic Ocean. They entered the Atlantic Challenge, competing against 25 other teams from all over the world. Their goal was to row 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean in record time to beat the previous USA record. They would be rowing, as you can imagine, over waves that ranged from one story tall to four stories high in a rowboat. This was no ordinary rowboat. It was equipped specially, but it did not row itself. Very few people in the world are physically capable of competing in this kind of race. It requires unusual strength and stamina in addition to various ocean water skills. Here's a short clip 
that captures the overview of our USA team. Rowing across an ocean is perhaps one of the greatest endurance challenges out there. And it's more than just muscle power and the physicality of it. It's the mental and emotional and technical part of the challenge. week has been a really fast week for most of the crews. There has been the inevitable shock. The biggest upset that we've seen so far has been Latitude 35. A very strong, well-motivated, well-prepared crew found that one of their number, the seasickness that he felt, was just unprecedented. Totally debilitating. Our goal was to try to finish it in as close to 30 days as possible, and within the first day, we were pretty certain that wasn't going to happen because Ben was showing a lot of times of sea sickness on day eight. He was so dehydrated and so malnourished, he started to convulse and shake. But once we started seeing that on day eight, it was obvious that there needed to be a university evacuation. He was crying, talking to the ocean. He was saying things like, I'd rather die than be here. He was throwing up five to ten times a day. Uh, so we had to anchor the last few days while they caught up to us. It was very dramatic. But Greg, he felt he was not safe here anymore. But the next morning when I went to talk to him, he said, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to leave. So December 1st, New Year's Day, anything Greg got off, it was just two of us. And that was a weird feeling. To know that we were only 600 miles into the race, rowing a boat that's supposed to be manned by four or five people with only two people. I mean, if this was easy, then, then you know, more people would do it.
January 25th. End of our day shift. We start our night shift in about one hour. Two hours on, two hours off. We're averaging at this point between 80 and 84 miles every 24 hours. Uh, pretty much 50-50 with 12 hours a night doing about 80 to 82 miles in the same of the day. But we're averaging also about four to five at the most hours of sleep that almost all come from the evening. We don't do almost no sleeping during the day. Um, and that has finally taken its toll on us. I think I've lost about 25 to 30 pounds. the story I thought I have so many questions for the captain Jason Caldwell so I've invited Jason to join us today would you help me welcome Jason Caldwell <laughs> Jason uh, how long have you been a member of uh, Brave Church uh, about two years now and who's your favorite pastor? Well, you've, you've put me in a kind of an awkward position here. Hey, what are you going to say, kidding. Joel Osteen or something? Or maybe, give me a break. Okay, I got to ask you. I got a lot of questions. Shoot. Uh, how, how much training was involved to prepare for this race? I trained about two years from the time that I thought about doing it. And what was the uh, skill level? I mean, these, these can't be average guys out here deciding to row across the Atlantic Ocean. Who were they? And a little bit about them. Yeah, so I put together this team a couple years ago, and it was made of elite athletes. So we were all collegiate rowers at one point and then went on to row an elite level at some point. I was on an Olympic training team for a few years on the East Coast, and the guys were the same. So these are high-level athletes and rowers. Now, tell us about that boat. I haven't seen that around on normal lakes or whatever. Yeah, so this is, a, this is an ocean rowing boat, so for those of you that thought it was paddling around in a kayak, that's not what happened. Um, <laughs> it's got solar panels on it for energy. It's got um, computer systems inside of it for keeping our bearing and our course. You've got um, a water desalinator to make fresh water. You pack all your own food in, so we've got all our food in cabins for that. We have two cabins, a larger one, and that's a relative term, in the bow to sleep two people, a smaller one in the stern to sleep one person, so... This is an ocean-going vessel meant to right itself if it flips and all that kind of stuff. Was there a moment in the race that you faced despair? Um, well, yes, there, there was actually quite a few moments. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so one, one in particular was the uh, evacuation, which you, you saw up there. Um, at that point, we, had, uh, we, we, were, we, we were favored to win this race as a highly motivated, like you heard from the duty officer crew, um, elite athletes. Um, that was quickly not going to be the case because within a first day, Nick, my strongest rower, who uh, I'm six foot three, 200 pounds. He was six foot four, 220, just a huge um, athletic specimen. But he a, got a lot, a lot, a lot like, like you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just picture him. 55 and still alive. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So, um, he, you know, he, but by the first day, he was 
he was showing signs of seasickness, and every day it got worse and worse and worse. By day seven, he was getting sick five to ten times a day. He couldn't keep hold down water or food. Um, any of the pills that we were throwing at him, he couldn't even hold down, so we couldn't even tell if they were going to work. We were calling the medics every day on our satellite phones, um, and they kept having us try different things, and it was not, not working. It was only getting worse. So um, by day seven, he started to convulse and shake, like I had mentioned on the sad call there. And he said, uh, and he was saying things like, you know, I want to die. It's horrible. And I, he was also saying things like, I want to get out of the boat and swim home. I mean, he, was, he had lost his mind at this point. It was a very sad and very scary thing. Um, so I called the medics, told them what was going on. They said, this is an emergency situation. We need to um, bring the nearest sailboat over and evacuate him, which requires us to anchor which I did not know at the time because I thought we could just keep rowing. They'd catch up to us. And I know you're going to have to anchor. And I said, how long is it going to take to get there, to get to us? Like two to three days. At which pace I just said, well, the, the race is over for us. You know, we, we've lost. Um, but to make matters worse, after we had anchored, and anchoring is a very dramatic thing because um, you're getting just thrown around, essentially, um, by the waves and the storms. Um, but, but when we anchored and we were waiting, another member of my crew said, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm thinking about leaving as well. And I was shocked by this because I'm thinking to myself, uh, you know, this, is, this boat is called an R45, I think, and, and that is meant to be rowed by four or five people. And now I've got one guy who's being evacuated because he's sick, another guy because he was scared. And, and that's okay. I mean, we, it's a very scary thing out there. You're talking about 40 to 50 foot swells, waves just coming in at you. And we had spent the last week or so dealing with these swells. I mean, they, they literally are, you know, blocking the sun in the middle of the day. They're so big on you. So he was scared. And, and you're 600 miles out. 600 miles out. The closest land is the Verde Islands, which is just off the coast of Southwest Africa. That's where they were going to take these two. And so, um, you know, there is no, there is no alternative. So when I said, please take the night to think about it, the next morning, he got up, and he said, yeah, I'm going to leave. So at this point, we had two guys out. It was myself and Tom, the other, my, uh, my other, a good friend and colleague of mine. Uh, we were left to row the remaining 2,400 miles in a boat that, quite frankly, was uh, twice, twice the size that we needed it to be. So, Wow. Yeah, so that was, that, that was defeat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens to me every week. So we feel so, um, so now there's only two of you. You've got 2,400 miles more to go. You make the decision to keep going. That's you and uh, your friend Tom. And, um, but it's designed for four to five men to row it. That, that's remarkable to me. Uh, how, how many miles a day or feet <laughs> a day could you go? With yeah. two men rowing that boat. Yeah, it's a great question. So this boat, when the wind was in our, in our favor, you know, we, we were light. We had tossed a lot of food overboard at this point. I mean, the duty officer said on the sad phone, okay, now you guys need to get light. So start tossing as much as you can overboard and get, get light so you can manage and handle the boat because um, it's already way too big for you. So we did that. And so, so when the wind was at our backs, we could make 80 to 88 miles a day. In fact, our, our greatest day was 88 miles. But when the wind was not in our favor, it was quite the opposite. And we were getting blown around, just being overpowered, essentially, by the elements and the storms. And, and we would make less than 20 miles a day. So our worst day was 18 miles, which is just devastating <laughs> to be out there a whole day working as hard as you can. only made 18 miles, essentially, like, you know, 
you know, from here to Walnut Creek or something. That's as far as we rode, you know. It's just like, it's devastating. So. I'd be thrilled to be able to rode up <laughs> Walnut Creek. I don't know about you. Uh, and that's why you're not on the team. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa! Whoa! Are, we have fun. Are you on... Are you on the Raiders? Are you a what, what, a lot of hate there? Uh, what? Um, so storms that had to be a factor. What kind of storms did you deal with? Yeah, so we we ran into about five storms. They said that this may be the worst um, year for storms in the history of the race. This race has been going on since the mid nineties, um, and uh, we hit about five storms, which which means there was five separate times that we had to anchor. Now, anchoring, by the way, is this huge parachute that you let out into the ocean, and it fills up with water. You know, the parachute is maybe a quarter of the size of this room. So when it fills up, it acts as a drag. So you dra- it's dragging you, but it is an awful feeling um, because it's like you're a tetherball, basically just being pushed around by, this, uh, by the waves and the storm. So one particular storm was, was awful. You saw some of the footage there. It was we were anchored for two and a half days. This is a hurricane, literally, that was off the coast of Africa, and we were on the outskirts of it, which didn't feel like the outskirts at the time. But, um, you know, two, two and a half days of just basically going nowhere, in fact, essentially drifting backwards a little bit and just being pounded by the weather. And it's the worst thing to be on anchor. It's, it's horrible. Jason, I want to ask you a personal question. We've talked a little bit about this, but I want you to talk about your darkest hour when the moment when you felt the most despair in that race yeah and uh, and this is a, this is a very personal thing to me but the, the darkest hour came uh not even at that time when we um you know when we had our two guys evacuate it actually came essentially five days before the end of the race um and i do characterize this as my darkest hour because our families my wife my my parents um Tom's family um, were all already at the finish line, which is in Antigua and the Caribbean. They were already there. We, we, we were already delayed because we had anchored a week before. And um, the duty officer said, hey, good news. You know, last week of your race, last seven, you know, five to seven days, wind's at your back pushing you directly to Antigua. Great. You feel so good. You know, I lost 35 pounds. I went in at 215. I came out at 185, which is very light for me. And... Um, and uh, then all of a sudden, about seven days before the race, we get a call on the sat, line, sat phone that says, duty officer said, hey, bad news, boys. You're going to have to anchor. There's a storm coming. It's going to hit you real hard. And it was just devastating to us to know that we were going to have to anchor. We'd already put the anchor away. Like, I never thought I'd see it again. And so um, earlier that day, about six hours before that call, something really, really, really awesome happened. This orca, a killer whale, had breached it was the morning of, of right before that call. It breached, and, and we, you know, we, we watched it for a couple minutes. It was, it was an amazing sight. We know, I'd never seen a killer whale I mean, from, from you know, 10 feet away. Um, and we watched it, and, um, and then it went away. And then uh, a few hours later, it came back. And then, and then it was following us. And then it went away. And then for a few hours, we never saw it. We get this satellite call. We're devastated. Sun's going down. We're having to put out the anchor, which takes 30 to 45 minutes. I had to jump in the water because the anchor got caught on our bows. It's just insult to injury in every aspect. I'm in the water. It's dark. I'm very scared. I don't want to be in this water at night. You saw. I said no sharks. That's funny. But that, that's actually what you look for real quick. It's like make sure there's no sharks. And so I'm, I'm in, in the water undoing it, getting out. We put out the anchor. We're tired. We're beat up. We've lost weight. We have cuts everywhere. Nothing heals, by the way, when you're out there because you're so malnourished. You're eating the, 
freeze-dried meals. So, so nothing heals. Everything is open wounds. It's, you know, it's, it's disgusting. And um, your fingernails don't grow. Nothing grows. So we're just, we're just done. We've had it. I, I, I'm asking myself literally, like, where is God in this? You know, I, I am in despair. And this, we finally put the anchor out. And I'm hungry, but I'm too tired to even cook the meal. And Tom's feeling the same way. And then, really, literally, just, just as when I, I really need an answer, the orca, the killer whale, came back. And it, it's too dark, because we can't, and we can't see it's a moonless night, but literally you can hear it breaching, the, the sound of it blowing water through its blowhole comes up so, so close to us that it's, it, it startled us at first, because we were like, what was that? And in that moment, uh, a killer whale being that close to you, it could be a very fearsome thing, but and it didn't, it wasn't a fearsome thing, it was a sense of calm a presence of God, if you will. When we were in our darkest hour, and Tom agrees that was our darkest hour, we, we were given an answer. That killer whale stayed with us the whole night. We were anchored, and every two hours we'd get up to see if we could start to row again. And we'd check the weather, and we'd see if we were getting blown by, and the whale was still with us. Every two hours for six sessions, we got up, and it wasn't time to go. And then in the la- um, uh, about 12 hours later, as the sun was coming up, we got up, we checked, it was time to go, and the whale was nowhere to be found. Every 15 minutes until that point, we could hear it as we were sleeping, and then it was gone. And we got, we pulled the anchor in, and we rode. So it was an incredible, it, it felt like a kind of a guardian as it such was, alongside was, of you. It was incredible, yeah. And you felt this incredible calm, which is exactly the opposite of what I would have felt. Yeah, I mean, it, we, we've all seen Shamu, and while that's a great, that's a, that's a great thing to watch when you're at SeaWorld, it was a different story when you're out in the middle of the ocean. So. And then something else really great happened after that in terms of the wind. and. Yeah, so now we're about uh, a little less than 200 miles from the finish line, which seems like a long ways for us. It's like, oh, we're only 200 miles away. Um, but we started rowing, and not only did the wind literally shift 180 degrees from in our face to at our backs, but it started blowing at 30 knots, 30 to 40 knots. And for any sailors out there that know that's pretty strong winds, so strong at times with the waves hitting us perfectly that we were surfing down 40-foot waves. Our whole boat surfed down the waves where we actually stopped rowing for an, a good portion of the next couple of days because we didn't need to. Uh, the wind was blowing us so hard. The waves were in such a perfect angle that, and in fact, rowing was just a waste of time. It was better to just, just to conserve our energy. So we literally got blown in by 30 to 40 knot winds all the way to the finish line, which you saw those pictures there. So, so this whole experience, 3,000 miles, all the endurance, everything you went, back, went through, as you look back on it, what was, what was your takeaway from that? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, lots of takeaways, I, you know, and I've been home for the last seven weeks or so, and I've process this and thought about this and you know where is God in this and there's so many places but the one thing that always came back to me was wow if I would have known how hard this was going to be how much I was going to suffer we we thought we were going to finish in 30 to 35 days that's what everyone was projecting it's 51 Um, and I did not know I was going to lose two people Um, if I would have known everything that would happen I probably wouldn't have gone if I'm being completely honest I probably just would have quit I wouldn't have done it Um, but I kept thinking to myself, you know, that is why God does not allow you to see too far into the future, because if he did, we wouldn't be doing these things in his name that we do, these amazing things that he has given humans the ability to do. 
comebacks, great comeback stories. And, and, and that's what kept hitting me over the head as I started the process this last seven weeks. You wouldn't have accomplished what God had for you. Absolutely not. That's amazing. Now, what's amazing about this whole thing, I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, you finished 11th place out of like 20, 25, 26 teams, but you actually broke the American record. By just over 10 hours. <laughs> 10 hours. Two so guys, been, yeah. and they broke the record so. for the United States. They, they just That's amazing. That's amazing. That's amazing. Do you have a mother? I do. Yeah. <laughs> God, and, and you have a wife, Amelia. Most patient woman in the world. Incredible family. Praise God. Jason, thank you so much for being with us. Thank Let's you. give him a hand. What a, what a remarkable story. Uh, I'd say he's brave. You know, there's another... Uh, story that I want to tell you, and it's, it's probably an urban legend. However, it's been around for so many decades, no one really knows. And it's a story about a Polish concert pianist named Paderewski. And one night, he was doing a major concert in this big concert hall, and there was a mother who had a nine-year-old son, and she was having trouble motivating him to take piano lessons. And so she decided to bring him to the concert to try to inspire him. So they get to the concert hall, there's a lot of people, and the concert hasn't started yet, and uh, they, they get seated and so forth, and a lot of noise, a lot of busyness there in the concert hall, and uh, he slips out, he, he's restless, he slips out, she loses sight of him, the next thing she knows, he's up on the stage, and he's walking across towards the piano, and now uh, everybody started to see him and, you know, began to gasp, like, what's this kid doing up there, and he's... This little kid's making his way towards the piano, and he climbs up on the piano bench, and um, he starts playing chopsticks. And uh, Pedereski comes out, and everybody sees him, and they're like, what's going to happen here, you know? And he comes over to him, and they're like, is he going to be angry? Is he going to tell the kid to get off his, you know, $100,000 piano, or what's going to happen here? And so he comes along behind the kid who's playing chopsticks, and he puts his arms around him. And he whispers, you're doing great. Keep going. Don't quit. Keep going. Don't quit. And together they play the most unbelievable duet of chopsticks you've ever heard. When the concert was over that night, nobody remembered the concert, but they all remembered that nine-year-old boy playing chopsticks, a duet with Pederaski. This is a picture of Easter for me because it's all about Jesus Christ shows up on Easter not to condemn you, but to wrap his arms around you. And that's what God does. That's what God did for Jason. You know, this amazing well coming alongside that brought him incredible calming peace and presence of God through this mighty well, a God who's mightier than that well. And you can discover and experience a God this morning that's like that, that comes from behind and comforts you and wraps his arms around you because Jesus Christ is risen. He can show up and come alongside of you in your life in just the way that you need him to, and he'll say, don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit that marriage. Don't quit your family. Don't quit. And then it gets better. You can come back from despair. You can come back from defeat. 
And the third thing is, because of the resurrection, I can overcome doubt. Many people did not believe in Jesus when he was here on planet Earth. The entire world doubted him. The entire world doubted him, and he proved them wrong. How much more reason do we have to keep our faith when we're in doubt? Easter is not Good Friday. This is not the day that we mourn his suffering. People get that confused. This is the day that we celebrate his comeback. Easter is about celebrating an empty tomb. And many followers of Jesus today live their lives like he's still in the tomb. They live defeated. But he's not in the tomb. He won. We won. Today's not about the cross. It's about Jesus defeating death once and for all. And now we can have eternal life. That's amazing. And in our world where everybody's so concerned about health and trying to live longer, we already have that secret, the secret to eternal life. And that's huge. If you want to live forever, follow Jesus. Do you want to live forever? Follow Jesus. And then finally, because of the resurrection, I can come back from death itself. That's amazing. I have loved ones I can't wait to see. I know where they're at. I know they're there. They made decisions. They made decisions on Easter and other Sundays and other days of their lives to begin to follow Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you're connected to me, because I rose, you'll rise. Because I live forever, you'll live forever if you're connected to me. And I don't know if you've thought about this, but our culture doesn't really think about death much. They don't want to think about death much. Let me put it this way. If you are... If you're over the age of 40, would you raise your hand if, if you're able to? Okay, a lot of hands, okay. All right. If you're under the age of 40, raise your hand. Okay, great. Man, about 50-50. Um, you know what you two groups have in common? 120 years from now, you'll all be dead, right? Isn't that encouraging? Only a fool would spend their entire life Knowing something is an inevitable death and not preparing for it. Easter says there's a heaven and there's a risen Savior. It's real. And there's a future that can be secure. There is someone that we can count on in this world and on this planet, and it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. I like to study uh, famous people's last words. It's kind of morbid when I think about it. But I, I like that because I think that people's last words sh show us so much about their faith and who they were or who they weren't. For example, these are some things that, that people have said on their deathbeds. William McKinley, our 25th president, he was a strong Christian. And uh, with his whole family around him, he said these words before he died. Nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee, it's the Lord's way. And then he looked at his family and he said, bye all. Closed his eyes and he was gone. Isn't that cool? It's death for a follower of Jesus as you just get nearer and nearer and nearer. That's the way I want to go at around 95. <laughs> Dwight L. Moody, the famous pastor of Moody Bible Institute, when he was dying on his deathbed, 
with his whole huge family around him, he said, I see their faces. And then he named his two kids that had died earlier in life before him. And he says, I see Benny. And then he said, I see our daughter. His son, who was next to him on his deathbed, said, Father, you're dreaming. And Dwight Moody says back, I'm not dreaming. I've been within the gates. I've seen the kids' faces. This is my coronation day, and it's glorious. And he closed his eyes, and he went, and he joined his kids. Isn't that great? I love this next one. A legendary missionary, an amazing guy, puts this whole thing into perspective on his deathbed when he says this. I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school, ready for summer vacation. Isn't that great? And then he was gone. That's the kind of confidence that we have, the kind of assurance for those of us that are following Jesus. We're connected to him. Yes, we have tribulation in this life. Jesus said we would, but we have something to hope for. There's good news. And I want to close with this. What do these words describe? Despair? Defeat, doubt, and death. Does that not feel like our country right now? I mean, what do you think? I mean, look at our country filled with despair to levels that we've never seen before in our lifetime. Millennials and the younger generation not having the hope or the American dream that we once had. And many people are angry and they're defeated and they're racked with doubt, not knowing that they have anything that they can count on. And they're scared and they're scared of death. But because of the resurrection, I don't have to stay stuck in despair. And I can live with hope. And then anything is possible. And I don't have to go my entire life burdened with guilt. I can receive forgiveness through Christ. And I can be confident in my faith that I know that my future is settled and where I'm going is settled. And because of the resurrection, I can have that right now in my life. And so let's pray on this Easter Sunday.